0: Welcome to this Peer Voice
1: activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash TTP. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck Healthcare KGAA Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on gestational diabetes and polycystic ovarian syndrome. This activity comprises a series of five streaming episodes with Professor Aoife Egan and Evanthea diamanti candaricus At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
0: Hello, I'm Eva Egan. I'm an Assistant Professor of Medicine and Consultant Endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Minnesota, USA. Welcome to this activity entitled Insulin Resistance and Women's Health, Case Studies in Gestational Diabetes and Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome. Along with my esteemed colleague, Professor Diamante Kandakaris, who is a Professor of Medicine and Endocrinology at Medical School University of Athens, Athens, Greece, we will look at the importance of initiating glucose-lowering therapies to optimize glycemic control as well as guidance for developing and implementing treatment plans for patients with gestational diabetes or polycystic ovarian syndrome. In this first episode, titled The Importance of Optimal Management of Insulin Resistance in Gestational Diabetes, or GDM, and Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome, or PCOS, we will look at the goals of therapy and importance of optimal management of insulin resistance in women with GDM and PCOS. The evidence for antihyperglycemic therapies for use in GDM and PCOS will also be discussed. PCOS is a common endocrinopathy affecting one in 10 females of reproductive age. It is a complex metabolic disorder and its precise cause is unknown. After exclusion of related disorders, two out of the three following criteria are typically used to diagnose. Firstly, irregular cycles. Secondly, clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. And thirdly, polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Insulin resistance is a key finding in individuals with PCOS, and obesity is frequently but not always present. Women with PCOS may have difficulty in conceiving due to effects of obesity and metabolic dysfunction, including insulin resistance. These factors impair ovulatory function, oocyte quality and endometrial receptivity. Patients with PCOS are therefore more likely than those without to require induction of ovulation or in vitro fertilization when conceiving. They also have an increased risk of miscarriage once pregnancy is established women with pcos are at an increased risk of gdm or gestational diabetes some additional challenges which also form goals of therapy for women with pcos include hyperandrogenic features increased risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease endometrial hyperplasia with an associated risk of endometrial cancer and intermittent ovulation, which can risk unplanned pregnancy. Lifestyle modifications form the cornerstone of treating the insulin resistance associated with PCOS. There is a focus on normalizing weight and encouraging regular exercise. Metformin can be considered, particularly in those who are overweight or obese, or if there is glycemic disturbance. The usual maintenance dose is 1000 milligrams twice daily. Extended release preparations may reduce GI side effects. And women should be counseled that its use in PCOS is frequently off label. And B12 deficiency can occur with long term use. Other glucose lowering and weight loss medications can be considered if needed but pregnancy plans should be taken into account when making the pharmacological choice. GDM is a transient hyperglycemia, which typically occurs in the late second trimester of pregnancy and resolves postpartum. GDM occurs when beta cell function cannot overcome the insulin resistance of pregnancy. There are several risk factors for GDM, including overweight or obese BMI, and GDM in a prior pregnancy. In fact, many of the risk factors reflect the same risk factors for type 2 diabetes. PCOS is a very strong risk factor for developing GDM. The worldwide incidence of GDM is in the region of 4 to 16%, but the pooled incidence of GDM among women with PCOS has been shown to be approximately 20%. To diagnose GDM, there are various options, and they are quite controversial. In the United States, we typically follow a two-step approach using a 50 gram oral glucose challenge followed by a three-hour oral glucose tolerance test if certain cutoffs are reached on the glucose challenge. Typically two out of four abnormal criteria on the three-hour oral glucose tolerance test are required to diagnose GDM. However, a one-step strategy using a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test has been recommended by the International Association for the Study of Diabetes in Pregnancy and the World Health Organization. Using the one-step approach, just one abnormal value is required to diagnose GDM. Several adaptations to these criteria have occurred worldwide. For example, in the United Kingdom, NICE guidelines recommend the one-step strategy but use less stringent glucose cut-offs. There are significant consequences of gestational diabetes during and after the pregnancy. And this is because maternal hyperglycemia can cross the placenta leading to fetal hyperglycemia, subsequent fetal hyperinsulinemia, and result in disordered fetal growth. Pregnancy is also considered a metabolic stress test for future metabolic disorders and certainly higher insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction preceding pregnancy in women who develop GDM is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes in later life. Several studies have demonstrated the adverse consequences associated with gestational diabetes. The HAPO study is one of the key studies demonstrating that there are several increased risks um, of perinatal outcomes, including preeclampsia, preterm delivery, primary cesarean delivery and shoulder dystocia or birth injury in women with gestational diabetes. Several long term adverse outcomes have also been demonstrated, including an increased risk of maternal prediabetes and type two diabetes and offspring overweight, obesity, and impaired glucose tolerance in later life. One study has shown that compared to women with normal glucose tolerance tests and insulin sensitive women with gestational diabetes, those women with gestational diabetes and higher insulin resistance have a significantly higher BMI, blood pressure, fasting plasma glucose, fasting total cholesterol and triglyceride levels in early pregnancy. And all of these are factors that can influence long-term cardiovascular risk. The good news is that treatment of GDM does improve outcomes. This has been demonstrated in many studies, most importantly, the Australian Carbohydrate Intolerance Study in Pregnant Women, also known as the ASHWAT trial. This demonstrated that treatment of GDM reduces serious perinatal morbidity and may improve maternal quality of life. Most women with gestational diabetes are managed well with lifestyle interventions, but a proportion do require pharmacotherapy. To summarize, PCOS is a complex endocrine disorder and insulin resistance is a key feature. Women with PCOS are at higher risk of GDM. Treatment of GDM is effective in reducing the associated adverse pregnancy outcomes. Glucose lowering therapies can improve outcomes for individuals with PCOS and GDM and should be considered. And I would encourage you to tune into episodes two and three to hear more about pharmacological treatment of GDM. In this episode, we will discuss a pregnant individual with newly diagnosed gestational diabetes or GDM. We will look at the clinical case with newly diagnosed GDM and how to manage this patient. Let us discuss Celine, a 29 year old lady who is 25 weeks gestation. She has had one prior pregnancy ending in a miscarriage. Her prior past medical history is unremarkable and she does not smoke. Her pregestational body weight was 57 kilograms and her body mass index or BMI was 23.7 kilograms per meter squared. Her pregnancy has been uncomplicated to date and she is not taking any medications. At this time, we should ask Celine about her family history of diabetes mellitus. And in this case, her mother does have a history of type 2 diabetes. Based on this information and her current gestational age, an oral glucose tolerance test with 75 grams of glucose was performed. At the time of the oral glucose tolerance test, the fasting serum glucose was 95 milligrams per deciliter or 5.3 millimoles per litre, and the 1 and 2 hour glucose values were 117 milligrams per deciliter or 6.5 millimoles per litre and 97 milligrams per deciliter or 5.4 millimoles per liter. Based on this, her diagnosis is that of GDM or gestational diabetes. We asked several clinicians what treatment strategies they use for gestational diabetes. 75% of respondents stated that they used nutritional counselling most of the time or almost always. 71% said that they used a specific diet, such as a low-carbohydrate diet, most of the time, or almost always. Typically, we advise women with gestational diabetes to engage in glycemic monitoring. And this usually involves self-monitoring of blood glucose three to four times per day. For the fasting value, it's generally done in the morning, following at least eight hours of overnight fasting and the goal glucose is less than 5.3 millimoles per litre, or less than 95 milligrams per deciliter. Women with GDM are typically advised to monitor their postprandial glucose two to three times per day, either one or two hours after the onset of their meal. The goal one-hour postprandial glucose is less than 7.8 millimoles per litre, or 140 milligrams per deciliter, And depending on the guideline, the two hour postprandial value should be less than 6.4 to 6.7 millimoles per litre, or 115 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. And we typically aim to have at least 80% of values within goal. Nutritional therapy is effective for the majority of women with GDM, and this targets insulin resistance. It's aimed at optimizing glycemic control and ensuring appropriate gestational weight gain. An individual food plan typically occurs following consultation with a registered dietitian. We need to consider personal and cultural eating habits, baseline exercise and BMI and blood glucose measurements. The diet should have a focus on whole grains, fruits and vegetables with avoidance of added sugar and foods that are high in refined sugar. Typically, women require a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrate per day, and this typically is obtained by three meals and two to three snacks throughout the day. Women should have a minimum of 28 grams of fibre per day during pregnancy, and this can help reduce constipation, which is a common pregnancy complaint, and may also help reduce glycemic excursions. There are very clear guidelines for gestational weight gain during pregnancy, as outlined by the Institute of Medicine. And they recommend a different total gestational weight gain, depending on the BMI category at the onset of pregnancy, so that women who are overweight are obese, Are encouraged to gain less weight during pregnancy than their counterparts who are either underweight or a normal weight at the beginning of pregnancy. Physical activity is associated with a reduction in glucose concentrations, and so we typically advise women with GDM to exercise regularly, for example walking for 30 minutes after a meal. Of course, an individualized recommendation really needs to occur depending on the baseline exercise program comorbidities, and presence or absence of pregnancy complications. Typically, we consider a pharmacological treatment if blood glucose targets are not met with lifestyle changes after one to two weeks. We would also add in a medication if fasting glucose is greater than or equal to seven millimoles per litre at diagnosis, or if it's between six and 6.9 millimoles per litre but there are complications of macrosomia, or polyhydramnios. When it comes to following up women with gestational diabetes, we recommend contact with a joint obstetric and diabetes clinic every one to two weeks for assessment of blood glucose control. Ultrasound monitoring of fetal growth and amniotic fluid volume should occur every four weeks from 28 to 36 weeks gestation, but this may need to be individualized. I do suggest that you listen to episode three for more details on pharmacological treatment of GDM. In this episode, we will look at a clinical case of a pregnant patient with GDM that is not responding to lifestyle and diet changes and how to manage this patient. We will discuss Celine, a 29 year old woman who is 25 weeks gestation. This episode builds on episode two. Celine's obstetric history is that she has had one prior pregnancy ending in a miscarriage. Her past medical history is otherwise unremarkable and she does not smoke. Her mother has type 2 diabetes. Celine's pre-gestational body weight was 57kg and her BMI was 23.7kg per meter squared. Her pregnancy has been uncomplicated to date and she is not taking any medications. An OGTT with 75 grams of glucose was performed at 25 weeks of gestation. At the oral glucose tolerance test, the fasting serum glucose was 95 milligrams per deciliter or 5.3 millimoles per litre, and the 1 and 2 hour glycemia was 117 milligrams per deciliter or 6.5 millimoles per litre and 97 milligrams per deciliter, or 5.4 millimoles per litre, respectively. At the time of initial diagnosis, Celine was encouraged to make lifestyle changes and to test her fasting and pre-dinner capillary blood glucose values over the next week. At 27 weeks of gestational age, 50% of her fasting capillary blood glucose values were found to exceed 95 milligrams per deciliter, or 5.3 millimoles per litre. So at this time, we should ask ourselves, how will we manage Celine's gestational diabetes moving forward? It's clear that pharmacological therapy for GDM should be considered. And worldwide, three different agents are typically used gliburide, also referred to as glibenclamide, metformin and insulin. The choice of therapy can be somewhat controversial. Both metformin and glibenchlamide travel across the placenta into the fetal circulation, but neither are associated with teratogenicity. We asked several clinicians what treatment strategies they use for gestational diabetes stated that they typically used metformin therapy, 32% stated that they used insulin therapy most of the time, but just 50% um, stated that they used gliburide therapy most of the time or sometimes, whereas 50% stated that they never or rarely used gliburide therapy. Gliburide is typically started at 2.5 to 5 mg once daily and increased as needed to a maximum dose of 20 mg per day. Twice daily dosing is often necessary to maintain glucose levels within the target range. Maternal hypoglycemia is considered the most common side effect. Metformin is typically initiated at a dose of 500 mg once daily often with the evening meal, and if tolerated, it should be increased by 500 to 1000 milligrams orally per week, reaching the usual effective dose of 1500 to 2000 milligrams orally per day in two divided doses. The most common side effects of metformin are gastrointestinal, and these can be reduced by a gradual dose increase. When it comes to insulin therapy 0.7 to 2.0 units per kilogram are typically required to gain adequate glycemic control and we generally use a combination of long or intermediate acting insulin with rapid acting insulin the insulin therapy can be focused to target a specific glycemic pattern traditionally the mainstay of insulin therapy involved nph and regular insulin but the use of insulin analogues is increasing. Several studies have looked at the differences between the pharmacological agents in treating gestational diabetes. One important meta-analysis published in the BMJ in 2015 examined the differences between metformin, insulin and gliburide during pregnancy. When they looked at metformin versus insulin, they found that there was no difference in neonatal outcomes, but that preterm birth was increased and gestational hypertension was decreased with metformin. When they looked at gliburide versus insulin, they found that the birth weights were increased with gliburide and neonatal hypoglycemia was also increased with gliburide. And then when they compared gliburide versus metformin, there was a lower birth weight with metformin, but no difference in neonatal hypoglycemia. Several people have questioned the underlying source trial methodology and the fact that diagnostic criteria and treatment goals were unclear in the in the background studies. Several studies also had fairly small numbers with wide confidence intervals, and therefore the jury really remains out on which is the most optimal therapy. This has led to some discrepancy between national and international guidelines for the pharmacological management of gestational diabetes. In the UK, NICE guidelines recommend that if glucose targets are not met with diet and exercise within one to two weeks, we should offer metformin. And if adequate control is not achieved, insulin should be added. However, they also state that insulin is acceptable first line, and should be used initially with or without metformin if the fasting glucose was greater or equal to 7 millimoles per litre at diagnosis, or if the fasting glucose was 6 to 6.9 millimoles per litre, but there are complications such as macrosomia or polyhydramnius. The American Diabetes Association recommend that insulin is the preferred medication for treating hyperglycemia in gestational diabetes. Metformin and gliburide should not be used as first-line agents, as both cross the placenta to the fetus. Metformin should be avoided if there is hypertension, preeclampsia, or if there is risk of intrauterine growth restriction. And this is because metformin suppresses mitochondrial respiration, and there is concern that it can lead to these complications. Figo recommend that insulin, gliburide, and metformin are safe and effective therapies. They may be initiated as first-line treatment after failing to achieve glucose control with lifestyle modifications. They also say that metformin may be a better choice than gliburide, and to consider insulin as a first-line agent if there is a high risk of failing on an oral medication. So to summarise, Celine was counseled regarding the need to start pharmacological therapy. She initiated metformin therapy and gradually increased to 1000 milligrams twice daily, and this controlled her hyperglycemia throughout the remainder of the pregnancy, ensuring a great outcome for both Celine and her baby.
1: Hello, my name is uh, Ivantia Diavanti candarakis I am from Athens. Medical School, University of Athens, Greece, and I'm really glad and honored to join this presentation regarding cases with women who have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. As you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome is the commonest endocrinopathy of women in reproductive age. So we will focus on two main problems regarding the assessment of a patient with polycystic ovarian syndrome. One aspect is the metabolic and the other aspect is hyperandrogenemia with metabolic disorders as well who are aiming to fertility. This is a young lady of, uh, named Electra, who is 24 years old and uh, suffers from oligomenorrhea for the last 14 months. She is otherwise, otherwise feeling very well and has no other health problems. Her gynecological history is uh, remarkable regarding the age of menarche 11 years old, mild acne at the beginning of her youth, which is at the age of 15 years old, and her menstrual uh, cycles are regular until the age of 19, then she starts has to start to have areomenoria, oligomenoria, 6 to 8 cycles per year. Because of that she visited her doctor and uh, e- the patient is prescribed with oral contraceptives but electra did not start to taking the medications and asked for a second opinion this is why the patient came to uh, our uh, practice uh, the first question comes what more a physician regarding uh, pcos management and history of this patient should ask this young lady number one is uh, in view of her menstrual irregularities The physician should ask about family history of this young lady regarding diabetes mellitus. And in fact, the answer comes is yes, her mother suffers from diabetes mellitus. And the next question would be whether there is a history in the family of women with oligomenorrhea, hirsutinibus or other problems on that spectrum. And it appears that one of her sisters, who has normal menstruations but has some hirsutism, and her uh, uh, and uh, but she her sister has hirsutism. Her last menstrual period. Then the next question comes to ask the patient where was her last menstrual period. The patient is not sure when uh, her last period was because she, as we said, has oligomenorrhea. In this case, the most important thing is to rule out pregnancy. And for this reason, we need always to check human chorionic gonadotropin and make sure that a patient with irregular menses who has not, who is not sure about the last menstrual period, that the patient is not pregnant. This is a mandatory step when we assess patients with irregular menses make sure that the patient is not pregnant regarding her physical examination apart from being overweight with bmi 29 kilograms per square meter and and fairman galloway score of 9 number 9 the patient has no other abnormal findings which should be of notice And for this, at this point, we start thinking what is the differential diagnosis in this young lady and what laboratory tests should be required to make the diagnosis. First of all, the differential diagnosis is in in the range of all uh, problems uh, which could lead to menstrual irregularities and should be Checked like hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, non classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, androgen secreting tumors, Cushing syndrome, and finally, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is an exclusion diagnosis. We usually order hormonal profile of these patients of, in the follicular phase, but when a patient has oligomineria, Uh, then it's very difficult to know at which phase of the cycle is. After excluding pregnancy, any time of the menstrual cycle, we can draw blood to assess the hormonal profile in these patients. Therefore, no need to do progesterone withdrawal bleeding, no need to make sure that our patient is in the follicular phase in order to do the hormonal profile. Studies have shown that there is no much difference and is no need for that. To the question which androgen should be ordered in order to make the diagnosis of hyperandrogenemia, it appears that total testosterone is the most uh, uh, appropriate and the most accurate uh, androgen to assess the hyperandrogenemia, which is up to 60 and 80 percent of women with PCOS have elevated total testosterone. The methodology to measure total testosterone is very important, and liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry appear to be more sensitive. sensitive. However, radioimmunoassays, in comparison studies, have shown to be uh, accurate enough to assess the degree of hyperandrogenemia in women with uh, uh, signs, clinical signs of hyperandrogenemia or irregular menses. Regarding the free, the free testosterone, is known, it's not necessary to do free testosterone in order to make the diagnosis of hyperandrogenemia because up to 40% we may have uh, uh, errors regarding the, the levels of free testosterone. As far as delta 4 androstenedione, dihydropiestosterone and and sulfate goes, only up to 10% of women or 25% of women with PCOS may have elevated these two androgens only with normal testosterone. We should emphasize that. Therefore, the first step is to measure total testosterone, and if this is in this in 20% of cases, this may be normal. Regardless of the, of the degree of hyperandrogenemia on clinical grounds, and then in those cases, delta-4-androstenedione, the hydroepiandrosterone, should also be measured just to assist the our diagnosis of hyperandrogenemia. We did all that in our patient, and actually, it was excluded that she did not have hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, and she found to have elevated testosterone levels and. Uh, Her uh, fasting glucose and fasting insulin levels were elevated. For this reason, we did order a glucose tolerance test and specifically for this patient was extremely important because she has positive family history of diabetes. The American uh, Androgen Androgen Society uh, for PCOS is recommending... oral glucose tolerance test for all women with PCOS with family history of diabetes in order to exclude abnormalities of insulin resistance in these women. So exactly this is what we did. And this young lady has hyperinsulinemia with normal glucose tolerance test, but with hyperinsulinemia suggesting that she has insulin resistance. Our first approach in overweight women with PCOS who have menstrual irregularities and have abnormal glucose tolerance test, is to m- m- modify these parameters by lifestyle modification. We do know that lifestyle modification is the most appropriate step, but is not is but very rarely is successful to correct the hyperinsulinemia and menstrual irregularities in this patient as it occurred in our patient as well, which is actually after three months of efforts of lifestyle modification, diet and exercise, this patient, instead of decreasing her body weight, her She increased her BMI and increased her fasting blood glucose as well as fasting insulin and testosterone levels. And she did not, of course, correct her oligomenorrhea. For this reason, we went to uh, add to her treatment metformin which is the best medication to as an insulin sensitizer to reduce insulin resistance as well as to improve her metabolic abnormalities and improve her menstrual irregularities so we combine lifestyle modification with metformin treatment regarding of the degree of insulin resistance it has been shown that metformin and lifestyle modifications are improving menstrual irregularities in women with PCOS. Treatment with metformin appears to be very beneficial in these women in both aspects, metabolic as well as menstrual irregularities. Regarding the dosage of metformin, this depends on the body weight of the patient. The more obese patient needs higher dose, up to 2,000 mg, uh, metformin per day and up to 1,500 per day is, a, is a, a usual dose of metformin. And we recommend gradual rise of the doses of metformin in order to minimize gastrointestinal complaints and uh, side effects. To summarize, considering the patient's metabolic profile, NOCP was not the first treatment, the first choice of our treatment, but first of all, we had to modify her obesity and hyperinsulinemia, considering her positive family history of diabetes with lifestyle modification and metformin, which was prescribed to this young lady, uh, we achieved after nine months of treatment, regular messages with normal ovulation as it was confirmed with mid-luteal serum, progesterone levels, uh, uh, which uh, was uh, proved that uh, her menstrual cycles were ovulatory and she had also improved her metabolic profile. Uh, Let's look at the, the second case, which actually in this patient we know the diagnosis of PCOS and we know that she has impaired glucose tolerance, but this young lady wants to become pregnant. And let's see how to manage this patient. I will be going over it. She's, her name is Aphrodite, is a 24-year-old young lady, and she had always an abnormal uh, abnormal menses since the beginning of her, since menarche and uh, she is obesity since childhood. Uh, she, uh, Her family history is also positive for diabetes, and her uh, uh, physical findings uh, are significant regarding, first of all, severe insulin resistance signs, which is acanthosis negricans, and severe degree of uh, hyperthrocosis, ferriman galloways score up to 20. And this is acanthosis nigricans, which is hyperkeratinosis of uh, the the keratinocytes, which uh, is due to the growth effect of insulin as well as insulin-like growth factors. So this girl with no... And no any any uh, doubt. She has severe insulin resistance, and she has impaired glucose tolerance. We also again need to exclude other abnormalities which could also have the similar phenotype. Therefore, we have to exclude hypothyroidism to exclude that this young lady by chance is pregnant to exclude hyperprolactinemia, And as we see here, we have to look at 17-hydroxyprogesterone because this young girl, has menstrual irregularities since her uh, menarche. This is very important to be excluded because congenital adrenal hyperplasia, classical or, or non-classical, can start from menarche. And we prove that this young lady has severe hyperandrogenemia has androstenedione in the upper limits of normal and suppressed SHBG, which is a sign of two things, hyperandrogenemia as well as insulin resistance. Therefore, we know that this young lady has clinical as well as biochemical and hormonal abnormalities of hyperandrogenemia and insulin resistance. There's no question she has uh, uh, insulin resistance, as we said, and now you can see the incredibly high levels of insulin which are following her glucose tolerance test. Our diagnosis now is that we have a very severe uh, syndrome of hair and which is hyperandrogenism insulin resistance and acanthosis nigricans these girls have really problems with becoming pregnant and if we want to modify their reg- their menstrual uh, irregularities we need to Combine our treatment with metformin as well as oral contraceptives with lifestyle modification. When these young ladies put priorities in the the fertility aspects and we have the time with lifestyle modification and metformin to reduce their body weight and try to regulate their menses, it's okay. But if we don't have the time for example, these young ladies are not 22 years old but are 35 or 39 years old and time is pressing for them to become pregnant, then concomitantly with lifestyle modification and metformin, we will start ovulation induction and this will be uh, with uh, starting with clomiphene, clomiphene citrate Concomitantly with lifestyle modification and metformin, tried to induce ovulation in these young women. But at the same time, we need to work as a team with psychologists and psychiatrists to support the psychological background, the dietitian, as well as the dermatologist, because hirsutism and acanthosis nigricans are really tough uh, 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 abnormalities considering the patient has severe insulin resistance, obesity with significant hyperandrogenemia linked with anovulatory cycles, significant subfertility, and it is clear that this is a very demanding and multi-targeted task with no signs, with no single treatment of choice for this patient. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: This has been an activity published by PeerVoice.